0: Prevention-based tools leave you blind to threats inside your network. By adding network traffic analysis to your SOC, you can find and stop attackers before they make their move. ExtraHop provides complete visibility at enterprise scale. Detect threats 95% faster with machine learning that helps tier one analysts perform like seasoned threat hunters. Visit extrahop.com forward slash securityweekly to learn why the Sands Institute calls ExtraHop fast and amazingly thorough. That's extrahop.com forward slash securityweekly. Networks are becoming increasingly complex and fragmented, and digital transformation and DevOps are driving an explosion in network connectivity changes. With each new network connection, cyber attackers may gain another opening to breach or traverse the network. At 2 they've pioneered a policy-based approach to network security management using automation and analytics. As a result, you can make network changes in minutes instead of days reliably and securely. To learn more about 2 the security policy company, go to securityweekly.com forward slash 2Fin in and sign up for a free evaluation. By the end of 2020, 99% of exploited vulnerabilities will be publicly disclosed and known to IT system admins. The consequences of that fact means the burglar will already be in your house because you left the front door wide open by failing to patch known vulnerabilities. How can you keep the threat actors out through cloud based automation Automox enables you to slam the door on unpatched OS and third party vulnerabilities across your entire Windows Mac and linux infrastructure take advantage of a free trial with automox to not only see the vulnerability status of your infrastructure but do something about it within minutes start automating the fundamentals of cyber hygiene at securityweekly.com forward slash automox that's securityweekly.com forward slash automox welcome back everyone to enterprise security weekly lee neely is still here with us and we'd like to welcome april wright she's now a preventative security specialist at architectsecurity.org. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay, good. Welcome, April. Nice to have you.
1: Thank you. Good to be back.
0: Um, and a quick announcement. Security Weekly is returning to Las Vegas. Literally, we're taking the show on the road. Uh, so if you go to securityweekly.com forward slash booking, you can book a uh, paid interview uh, and or possibly, if there's any slots left, uh, a sponsored slot on either Paul Security Weekly or Enterprise Security Weekly uh, as we are doing lots of recordings at Black Hat. We've opened up some more spots too uh, for individual interviews, uh, so make sure you check it out. Uh, again, we've uh, sold out and opened up some more slots, which is awesome. Uh, this segment uh, is based on some experiences I've had recently in uh, talking with John uh, and Matt a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> I asked him, I said, you know, I feel like as even if we just say enterprise security professionals that listen to the show, how many inherit other people's code? Now, this could be a pretty substantial application or more than likely you're inheriting someone's scripts for doing something as to accomplish a lot of tasks today requires code. Um, so a lot of a lot of us, I believe, are inheriting someone else's code. Now, I just inherited a pretty large application, about 8,000 lines of Python code. Um, as well as some JavaScript thrown in there for the front end as well, uh, and I've I have and so this is the application that I have designed from the beginning. I've been in and out of the code over the years, um, but not having a developer all year, I had to kind of put a lot of time uh, into it and really review a lot of other people's code. And three, at least three developers um, have had their hands in this code, and so uh, over the past few weeks, I've I've come up with some tips basically. Um, that if you're going to inherit someone else's code, um, these are some things that really helped me and hopefully uh, it helps you. Now, I, I'm a hardcore like Vim user. Like I've used Vim since way back in the day. Love the command line and the you know VI editor experience, right? You know, all that stuff. However, when you're inheriting someone else's code, I, I bid the bullet. And I've tried out other IDEs in the past. Um, I tried Atom. I tried VS Code. I know April or Lee. Do you have like a favorite? Everyone has their favorite, and whatever that's fine. I'm a VI person. There you go, and, and again, I I'm, I will, and I still am right. But I and Lee, are you a VI person as well?
2: I'm a VI person. I keep trying to type it at the Windows command prompt. Yeah, it doesn't seem to work. Right. Although I'm going to be trying Py uh, PyCharm as you recommended. Yeah, it sounded really cool. I. Also recently downloaded Atom, but I don't know that I'll do anything with it. Yeah, um, rather follow my buddy's recommendation, and not blaze completely fresh ground.
1: You you can get Sigwin and install Vi.
0: There you go. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I, um, well, yeah. the, the thing too is I and I don't want to encourage folks that are uh, in really in any stage of uh, you know programming or software engineering right to. Just go to the fancy GUI IDE thing. Like, I truly believe when you first start learning how to program, especially, that you should do it in just a regular text editor with no assistance. Debug your own code, right? Allow it to let you, you know, it allows you to make mistakes um, and and do that because it's a good learning experience. And then as you progress, I'm really now a really big fan of PyCharm. Um, Actually, our our intern, Jack, who started uh, officially today, uh, which is awesome, who's already pushing releases into Git, which is great because now I don't have to, Um, (laughs) gives me some help, which is great. Um, And the modern IDEs, uh, I think, are really awesome because in the ways that it helped me out looking at other people's code. Um, And now specifically, it does a lot of really cool things that I was like, wow, I haven't used an IDE in a really long time. Um, and getting back into it, I was like, this is great. So the first thing is variable usage. So it tells you if a variable is unused, and it tells you if a variable is undefined, which is great. Again, if you're making changes to someone else's code, it's highly likely that it's the latter, right? That you could end up with an undefined variable somewhere or trying to use a variable before it's defined, Uh, and the IDEs will actually flag that. Which is super helpful. It's super helpful for debugging other people's code that you're not familiar with. And let's be frank, it's super helpful for debugging your own code as well. Um, So that was great. And that's built right in. And there's lots of ways you can configure it. Um, But it'll basically tell you when you hover over the variable, um, where, you know, the state of its usage. The other thing that is super, super helpful, especially in other people's code, is being able to click or keyboard shortcut to get to the uh, if you're on a function or an object reference get to the implementation and the declaration in in two different uh you know scenarios right um that's great cuz you don't understand the whole flow you don't know where that function's defined you don't know where that function's used uh and pycharm makes it really easy to again whether you're over um function or some kind of object reference or whatever jump to implementation or declaration which was just super helpful in navigating, especially 8,000 lines of code inside of an application. The other thing that was good in in PyCharm that I liked uh, was global search, right? If I'm going to make a change to a variable or a function, I want to see all of the references in one screen to that variable or function or whatever piece of code you're looking at and looking to change. Um, So I use the, it's like command shift F, I think. Yeah, command shift F will search all of your project files uh, for a particular string. There's lots of uh, options for that search. And then it lists all the instances across multiple files. That's super helpful to go. I changed something and I just want to visually inspect what other pieces of code might be impacted uh, when I do that. So that's been super helpful. Um, And then the last thing inside of PyCharm specifically that I like is inspection. Um, and so there's lots of linting tools for all t- types of different languages uh, that you can get in all types of different IDEs. Uh, I'm actually using the one built into uh, PyCharm. And this tells you about uh, any kind of warnings or, or errors across your entire code base. Uh, so before this is nice before I'm ready to do a push either into staging or production. Um, I'll run the inspection plugin and see what I might have missed. Right? Is there an error that I just didn't see when I was reviewing the code? Um, and it tells you about all those errors and warnings, which is just super, super helpful. Um, and it shouldn't be, you know, a crutch. You shouldn't be like, oh, well, inspection will just tag that because it's not perfect either. Um, you have to, you know, sometimes double check that, uh, you know, it's an undefined variable or whatever the uh, inspection is. Um, but that was super helpful.
2: So uh,
0: I, go ahead, Question
2: for you. So, one of the things I remember when learning a new language that vexed me was was understanding variable scoping, what the context is and what it can change is does your idea give you any help with you know you're changing a global or it's a local? Because I certainly got that wrong enough times.
0: yeah, it'll um it'll actually flag that as an undefined variable, right? If it falls out of scope somewhere. Um, or you're referencing what I love to is if you reference an attribute of an object that or mm-hmm. a method within an object that isn't defined in the object, it tells you about that. It highlights it and it's like, this attribute doesn't exist in that object dummy. I'm like, oh yeah, I yes. commented that out or, you know, and, there, and there, I actually found errors in, you know, there that weren't getting hit in the code all the time that we just didn't uh, realize before. Uh, so it'll definitely flag those late.
1: Wait, are you saying that you don't just make everything a global variable?
0: I well, you know it depends on what I'm writing the co- writing code for in in my quick scripts for you know pen testing or security tasks absolutely right like I'll just use the global variables um, and it I you know I'm really kind of toying with uh, the quick script versus the really big application right um, and kind of that that progression uh, but yeah I, I totally get it if if you're trying to get something done fast right global variables are awesome yeah.
1: Have you ever had uh, had the IDE crash on you? And does it do like auto saving? Because it has never crashed on me.
0: Been yeah, it it so has it has crashed a couple times, not too often. Um, and it does save the state. Yeah, and your configuration as well, um, which is nice because I've done a lot more configuring in the interface. Um, for example, I've got uh, all my database connections Docker and the unit tester debugger, like all configured in the interface uh, and my Python interpreter, uh, which is nice. Again, I really believe you need to do all that stuff manually first to understand how it works. Because as April say, when it does crash or something goes wrong, you can't troubleshoot it if you've only tried to configure it in the interface, right? Um, So I've done all those things like, you know, SQL commands by hand and all that stuff. I made sure I understood it and then I configured in the interface uh, and it does save all that config and Uh, and your code automatically, which is nice. Um, The other thing I noticed was uh, logging in exceptions. definitely spend some time uh, adding some additional debugging and or logging statements uh, in there. Um, Prints, I mean, and this is gonna be language dependent. Um, In Python, I definitely recommend you look at the logging uh, class and logging methods, uh, the objects, they're awesome. Uh, They're awesome and what i find is developers either you know it's one of two things they'll they'll go to extremes there won't be any logging uh or exception handling or they'll be like way too much right and i think i i think it's an art as well as a science right as to how much and uh, of that you want to put in your code um but i also feel like if the previous developer had a, a good handle on it or they were just copying and pasting from stack overflow there's not a whole lot of comments and logging that they're including in that in that code. And so, uh, you know, putting that stuff in can give you some great indications of how the application's actually working. Um, and again, that might not be there when you inherit uh, the code because we've all done it, right? Uh, you don't put a lot of comments or logging in code that you're like, yeah, this is just working. I know how it works, you know, until you got to revisit it a couple of weeks later and then you forget how it works. Um, it's the same thing with other people's code. Um, so, uh, that was that was really super helpful, and again, Python's logging class, and I love Python's exception handling. Uh, I had to act, like go watch a module uh, on Pluralsight on exception handling to fully understand how it how it works. At a certain juncture, the basics are fine, but when you get into functions calling functions and passing exceptions, uh, you got to read the docs. Um, and, and that kind of brings me to the next point, which is don't trust logs or comments. One thing I've run into uh, pretty frequently recently is the previous developers in, you know, whether the code has changed or whether they, you know, didn't truly understand what it was doing in the first place, they'll write comments or write to logs that something's happening. And then you go review the code and you're like, no, 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 no. Like something completely different is happening. Like that's not, that's not what's happening. So they're logging an event incorrectly. So don't trust those logs or comments, right? Especially if you're troubleshooting a bug or some type of issue, your logging may be saying, hey, that was successful, but don't trust that uh, is my advice because that that could be a bug or a misinterpretation by the previous developer. So trying to understand what that particular piece of code is doing rather than just trusting the the comments or logging statements. As you know, a lot of times comments get stale. You comment something, you know, this code does this and then There's an emergency bug fix you got to put in and you change the code. It does something different, but you don't update your comment. Um, My other note on comments is most developers, I want to say a lot of developers, developers in general can make the mistake of not writing useful comments. (laughs) Like there's a a good way and a bad way to write comments. Uh, Comments should be very descriptive as to what the code's actually accomplishing. Um, It's hard to, Like, summarize that in a couple of sentences. I learned a a lot of those kind of coding techniques from a book called Code Complete. It's actually from Microsoft Press, as well as, you know, my fellow developers um, that I was working with at the time uh, early on were really hard on me, and I'm glad they were uh, about my comments, right? Uh, I remember specifically Joseph, awesome developer. He's like, dude, that comment sucks. Like, it would be very direct about it, too. And I'm like, but I understand why and he spent a lot of time explaining to me how you know important that was and how to write a good comment so um, I, I feel like that's not just important for if someone else is going to inherit your code but it's important for you as well because you might write a script for anything and then have to revisit it months later and forget what it does so it can save you some time.
1: It seems like a good idea if you do inherit some code while you're going through it and figuring things out that you create your own comments.
0: Absolutely it's a great point April. And what I like about the ID as well is that if you uh, put a comment in and you put the keyword to do in all caps, um, it actually can save those uh, into a separate part of the interface um, and you can review all of your to do's. So, a lot of places in the code, I'm like, I don't understand what this code's doing, right? Like, I have no idea. Like, will it ever reach this point in code? Am I all these things? And I'll put a to do in so that myself or other developers can go in and review those to do's. Also, if you add to-dos in the IDE when you make your commit, it'll say, hey, you've got three to-dos. Do you want to address those first before you make your commit? So that's super helpful as well.
2: So while you're making those comments, are you also adding debugging statements to say, you know, I'm here, the value of Bob is is seven or whatever, just to kind of that you can turn on and off in the future?
0: It's a great point too, Lee. Yeah. I've been modifying the debugging and logging statements to be a little more descriptive about like which piece of the code that I'm in. I found that a lot of the messages were generic, like, hey, there was an error. And here's, you know, the, the uh, I- exception argument for that error and the traceback. And I'm like, that's great. That does tell you what line of code. But I like the initial error to say, hey, there's an error in this function while I was doing this kind of thing. And being more descriptive in there is, uh, is important too. Um, beware of spelling mistakes is my other thing. Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not the world's best speller uh, or grammar either, but inside of your code, that's super important. And I've noticed, uh, spelling mistakes that not just in comments, but inside of code and inside of code that traverses multiple functions and multiple files as well. And that can really, I've spent, you know, on one particular spelling mistake, 45 minutes to an hour trying to troubleshoot something. It's because I was spelling it correctly, but the code spelled it wrong. And so uh, those are tricky to deal with. So uh, the IDE, the PyCharm, right, has a spell checker built in, uh, which is great. Uh, And you should just make sure everything is spelled correctly. And When when you're writing code, every every space obviously matters, right? Every indentation in Python, for example, matters. Uh, Every single character matters when you're programming. So you should pay attention to things like spelling, super important. You can go search and replace it too. Um, but obviously you could introduce a bug or some kind of functional issue, uh, if you do that and which makes it really hard for the next person, uh, to pick up and start maintaining your code, which brings me to my last point, which is unit testing, which is huge. Now I always thought of unit testing as I write my code and then I run the application as the developer and I'm testing it. Right. And Now, in I'm sure this existed before, right? But in a lot of different languages, Python is an example. There's a module called unit test, you can write your unit test. And this is all leading into Agile, right? Um, And I had never like, like done that before. And I'm really all about um, the unit testing your code and all about the Agile method of writing the test first and then going, writing your code. And you know, your code will likely be working once your unit tests are passed. Um, And this is all implemented in code. Uh, There's lots of examples on the web uh, and lots of modules and helpers inside of your language uh, that can basically help you unit test your code. Um, So I go in and I just, I create all my objects in a separate script. Um, What I liked about the IDE was you can, if you write a script, so I wrote a a test script, right? Um, I went into my IDE and I said, that's my unit test script. And then I can run it through the IDE after I ran it from the command line and interpreted the results, I ran it in the IDE and it gave me this great printout and it was like, okay, I'm executing this check. And if it passed, it put a check mark. If it failed, it put an X. And then you go into the the interface and for a test that failed, you can double click, jump right to that piece of code. Um, So that was super helpful, especially I I found my own bugs, not going to lie, found my own bugs, right? Um, I also found a lot of other bugs too and it helped me kind of unravel some of the code that was there just by writing these uh, unit tests I, if you're especially in a larger application I highly recommend the agile method uh, of writing these tests um, it's it just it makes your code so much better so much cleaner uh, when you do it that way so fun stuff
2: so sounds like you might have a, a new library of requirements when somebody's creating code for you of what what's left behind like unit testing scripts and that you spell check the darn thing Yep. Or do you have such a list?
0: Um, not necessarily a a list, um, but certainly I I like the requirement of writing those those tests and then measuring the coverage, which is something else that's built into m- most of these tools. Is when I write my unit tests, uh, Python has like the coverage module, which will tell you, you know, your tests are covering. of your code base, right? So I know that when I'm doing my unit tests that I'm missing out on a lot of functionality. So you go write more tests to try and increase uh, your coverage that exists in Java in a a ton of other languages as well. And that's super important. So I could, you know, I could see guidelines and procedures like you're saying, Lee, of, you know, making sure your tests cover a certain percentage of functionality uh, when you're unit testing.
1: That seems like a great artifact to include with code that somebody else may end up with one
0: day as well. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you go in and make what I like now is the reason I implemented it is because I wanted to go in and make changes and add functionality. And I was really concerned about breaking core functionality. If your unit test can test that core functionality, I make my change. Like you're saying, April, I go run my unit tests and realize I broke something uh, and can fix it a lot more easily. So. And then I got to implement security testing. Right, <laughs> that's that's next. I got a lot of the functional stuff uh, done, so hopefully there'll be some further segments on uh, how to do security. I, in a lot of that, really, what I noticed in a lot of people's applications, right, what we notice is, uh, and even pentesters tell us, going through Git repositories, um, that credentials are a huge thing. I, I think that's like the number one thing uh, that you need to address as. A developer and inside of software is how you're storing and handling all of your credentials because um, you're going to need a lot of them, right? I mean especially in DevOps because all those uh, tools have to chain together. So you got your database credentials, you got your API keys, you've got your user credentials for people using your application. Um, those, thankfully, in the application I'm working with are handled correctly. Um, so they are stored correctly in the in the database uh, using a, a, a good hashed algorithm, uh, for that. But the other passwords, I mean, really what it comes down to is you need a vault. Um, and to people that do development for a living, even they'll tell you that are like, it's not like the easiest thing in the world to implement. You need one, but, uh, it takes a little time. So that'll is definitely on my list to address soon and share with our audience as well. Um, as you, again, you see a lot of code with uh, you know those credentials laying around in in plain text. Any other questions, comments? All righty, April. It
1: it just sounds like there's some neat features in in yeah. that sort of setup. Um, that's I don't do a lot of coding anymore, but uh, if I did, I'd definitely check it out.
0: Yeah, I'm really liking liking the PyCharm. Was a good good recommendation, and
2: I'm thinking that what you what you've got out here would be a real leg up if next time. I was starting to wade through somebody else's code to uh, understand it and uh, and then alter it without breaking it. Um, what, yeah, you have to see how successful
0: I am. That's the trick: is to not break it. <laughs>
1: uh, I'm wondering what kind of automation you can put around that um, for. Uh, like doing code scanning before you check it in, or um, or something like that. I, I was looking at their uh, website. It, and it it looks like you can write your own plugins and things. I wonder if there's anything that can do that already.
0: Yeah, there's tons of uh, plugins that are out there already. Um, some come from JetBrains, is the the company, um, and there's others from the community as well. Uh, they give you a little more advanced features. Likely, some that can do a lot of that uh, automation. I haven't really automated my workflow. I've made it easy for myself, but I haven't like fully automated, um, you know, the, the kind of linting functionality and uh, code checking, you know, in the process. So uh, I'm sure all that's available.
1: Well, we, we got to uh, practice what we I, preach, right? That's if, right. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. We tell everybody else to automate because it makes it, auto, you know. Uh, It makes it happen first of all you don't forget and then um you know you don't really have to think about it
0: yeah yeah i i love the devops for the capability to do that automation right so what i'm progressing towards is you know as i make changes as i make security improvements that there's tests that automatically run when you push the build uh that check against that and most most modern you know software shops are already doing this in various levels, obviously. But I think there's a difference between, you know, functional testing and security testing as well, right? And even different levels of functional testing, right? There's, I think unit testing is very different from, because unit testing, it lives inside the code. What I thought was really cool is like, oh, I can just like write a test script and I'm inheriting all the objects from my code. I can go create everything and that's a great unit test once it pushes up to the next level, right, you're pushing it into, you know, one of your staging uh, environments, then you test automatically through the web interface, right? Because that's introducing a whole lot more code and, uh, and kind of code flows into your uh, environment, right, and your testing. And then security testing, I think, is a, a kind of a separate thing um, that runs against that. And all, all the tools you can string together to do that in an automated fashion, uh, which is, and a lot of people are, are doing that and, if you're not, it's certainly something you want to look into. Um, depending on you know which environment you are, is going to define your tools. So
1: it's sort of like micro DevOps. Yes. You and you and your code.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Cool. So with that, we will take a short break. Come back. Talk about the enterprise security news.